Simon Deakin, Director of the Centre for Business Research. Simon, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today on your two-day Labour Standards workshop. If we have a look at two papers you've been involved with, the first with Boya Wang, the effects of labour protection on productivity, evidence from the new Chinese labour law. Why is that paper important? Well, the paper discusses the effects of a very important legal measure, which is the Chinese Labour Contracts Act that was passed in 2007. as a major event in China's recent legal evolution and in the development of its labour market because it represented, for China, a move away from a, a low-cost, flexible, under-regulated labour market regime to one where there was something more like a, a floor of basic rights written into every employment relationship. And one of those critical rights was the right to a formal written employment contract. And the paper which Boyer and I wrote addresses the economic effects of the introduction of this law, formalising the employment relationship. Every worker, every employee would have a right to a formal employment contract, an individual labour contract, setting out their terms and conditions. In addition, that law wrote into the employment relationship certain basic standards in connection with working time, in connection with dismissal, and also, along with this, have come separately but ancillary to this, many in many provinces and cities in China, a right to a minimum wage. And there are links between public sector and private sector rights, in the sense that if the public sector sets the lead, the private sector follows, but is not always uniform in what happens next. There were big regional differences in China. So what we were able to do is use a data set which has been created with the the help essentially of the Chinese authorities, which attempts to map differences in institutional quality across provinces. China's obviously a huge country, and one has to appreciate that the governance system in China is quite heavily decentralised, and also that different regions of China are at different levels of economic and political development. So it's a very different story if you're talking about a coastal region such as Guangzhou or the Yangtze River Delta area. It's very different if you're talking about these highly industrially developed coastal regions than if you're talking about some of the inland areas. Did the new labour laws always lead to positive rights and advances for workers? Well, what the study looks at, and it's an econometric study, it attempts to estimate the impact of the change in the law after controlling for other factors, such as the nature of the ownership of firms. Are they privately owned or are they state-owned enterprises? What kind of share structure do they have? It also looks at the difference we were just talking about between provinces in terms of institutional quality. And what the econometric analysis essentially finds is that, on the whole, the introduction of the law led to, or at least is correlated with, an improvement in productivity and so-called total factor productivity measured at firm level after controlling for the effects of provincial differences in legal and institutional quality at the provincial level. So there is apparently, on this evidence anyway, a statistical link between, a correlation between the passage of the law, the timing of the law's introduction, and improvements in efficiency at firm level, after you take into account institutional quality and ownership structure, with by and large private sector firms responding better in this sense to the law than state-owned enterprises. And that's because they have a different cost structure and could be expected to respond to a law of this type 
somewhat more readily or immediately than state-owned enterprises would. But the overall impact was positive. Yes, it was. So there's a, there's a positive correlation. So we need to study this more, and this, this analysis is a first attempt to understand these relationships. So we don't know why there might be a positive effect. It could be that on these data, we don't know, but it could be that the labour law induces employers, because they must raise their costs, to use labour more efficiently, so they recruit more carefully, so turnover goes down, and they train more intensively. So there's a short-term cost to firms, but maybe a longer-term benefit. And if that's true, and we don't study this directly, but if it's true, employment would also go up over time because resources in society are being used more efficiently. It could be that capital is replacing labour, and if, if that were true, unemployment would go up. But again, labour displaced that way might be absorbed into other employments if the economy as a whole improves. And if we move on to the second paper discussed on the second day, tell me a little bit about that. It was written by you. Yes, and Enying Zhong, Pricing Labour Capacity, the Unexpected Effects of Formalising Employment Contracts in China. It leads neatly on from your joint paper with Boyer. There were steps backwards as well as forward in formalising these employment contracts. It had unintended consequences. What this shows, I think, is that when you formalise the employment contract, the aim is to protect workers because they know what their rights are, but you can't really remove the fundamental asymmetry or inequality which exists within the employment contract. Employers have power over workers. China is a capitalist economy by and large now, and in such an economy, employers are empowered by their ownership, essentially, of, of the means of production. And workers no longer have the protected status they had previously in China. They're wage-dependent workers. They are, to some degree, exposed to employer power in a way which wasn't the case historically. Now, the employment contract gives them rights to know what their, their contract terms are. Sometimes their employers use the power they have to formalise the employment contract to the workers' disadvantage. And the essential idea here is that the employment contract may formally record a wage lower than the wage actually paid in practice or the customary wage for that job. So employment contracts are undeniably a double-edged sword for Chinese workers. And when they then took action to enforce the contracts, they weren't always successful. They can now go to a Labour Arbitration Commission to enforce their rights. So this is a very interesting development. China's moving from a society where, in the past, workers had certain social benefits by virtue of their position in society as, in essence, a revolutionary vanguard. They had the old so-called iron rice bowl system, workers and state-owned enterprises had access to a job for life, job stability, job security, housing, very often education, but not, not to a significant wage. Many of the benefits they received were payments in kind. They had a political role. That world has more or less gone and has been gone now for some time. And replacing that world is one where they are in a labour market, they sell their labour capacity, it's a commodity, they move around from one firm to another, there's no job security as there was in the past. They are nevertheless able to access a wage, in other words a cash payment, which gives them a certain right in a way to access the market and to participate in the market economy. So their position has fundamentally changed. Now in this world, workers seed, it seems to me, one particular set of statuses or rights for another set. In a world where there's a planned economy, you don't really need labour law. There's, there's job security, workers can't easily be dismissed. Workers are deployed by the state to work for particular firms. That world has gone. It's a world of the labour market. You're exposed to risks, risks arising from illness, unemployment, old age. 
how do we deal with those risks by introducing labour laws and social insurance. And that's what China has done. As China has moved from being a socialist planned economy to being a capitalist one, labour laws become more, not less important. Hello, my name is Boya Wang. I'm a research fellow of Centre for Business Research in Cambridge George Business School. Hi, my name's Anying Zheng. I used to work at the Centre for Business Research. Just recently took a job at New York Institute of Technology. Thank you, both Aying and Boya, for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today at our Labour Law Conference. If we begin with you, Boya, tell me a little bit about your paper, what you studied, and the conclusions you drew. Basically, we want to investigate whether the uh, enactment of the 2007 Chinese labour contract law would have any impact on the total factor productivity. And in particular, we want to see whether such potential effect vary across uh, different ownership types and also regional institutional quantities such as marketization, labor mobility, and legal quantity. The new labor laws were significant because it was giving workers rights for the first time in China. Yes, it is. It also increases the labor costs for manufacturers. Why was this so significant? And did the results of your research vary across sectors, whether they were private or whether they were state-owned? The preliminary result shows that the effect does vary across the different ownership types. Private control enterprises are productivity for the private sector is much higher, significantly higher than the state sector. And the impact on the private control enterprises from this law is actually much higher, more pronounced than for the state sector. As well as sectors, you found a difference between regions and local authorities in China, different ways in which the laws were interpreted and enforcement too. Yes, it is. I mean, the actual enforcement effect of the law is actually influenced by the local condition. And what about productivity? Could we see any results with workers' rights Total factor productivity is really different from labor productivity. Theoretically, I mean, the stronger employment protection would give stronger incentives for the employees to work harder. Total factor productivity, we say because given the rising labor costs, the entrepreneurs, the employers might have stronger incentives to run the firms more efficiently. And so far, our empirical evidence confirms this. Can you draw any conclusions? Because people would say higher wage costs, workers' rights, might lead to lower profits. My preliminary results confirm this. The enactment of this 2007 labour contract law actually eroded the listed company's profitability. And you see the conflict between, you know, the, the profit orientation and the productivity orientation. And I would like to know whether in the long term these two goals would converge, i.e. whether higher productivity would be translated into higher profitability in the long run. Well, thank you for that. And you did then code through a database your research. And how do you hope that will be used? I just hope this can have some policy implications in that a single law 
can't really generate simple effect at firm level. That really requires like complementary social economic conditions. So when policymakers are thinking about the law. Legislation. They also need to think about what are the local conditions. Will the local institutions' economic conditions support the enforcement of this law? Will increase the efficacy of this law, or actually it contradicts to the law's intention? Well, Boya, thank you. Did the result surprise you? Well, it generally confirms my prediction, but of course I need to do a lot more work. To refine and improve the methodology part, because the time span of the observation from 2004 and 2009 is it is a very turbulent economic period. We probably have to take into account more macroeconomic factors into the model. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Vani. Ining, if we turn to you now, we've heard about Boyer's research. Why did you decide to study the employment contract at this particular time? I think employment contract itself is a very important topic. My interest in that particular project started from an observation I had when I did my interviews. So back to 2011, I observed an arbitration. Episode between an injured worker and his employer. I saw them debating regarding how much the compensation should be, and then I thought about, oh, that's interesting in a way that a young man's life was very much valued by how much he made as a monthly salary. So I became interested, and it's difficult to get data. I started to talk with many people from different fields, and eventually, students from business school、uh, somehow helped me to get access to the data. It was a big advance for、mm. Chinese society,、mm-hmm. for workers, even、mm-hmm. migrant workers,、mm-hmm. yeah. who we know were exploited,、mm-hmm. to be given employment rights—a、mm-hmm. very significant turn in Chinese society.、Mm-hmm. I think that's in general that's true. Like many migrant workers now are. Offered with the option of having a contract of having all sorts of social security benefits like retirement fund, medical insurance, etc. So in general, the labor law is good; it's protective for them.、Uh, just. In my particular case study, in the context of compensation for injuries,、uh, it happens that the labor law has, so to speak, negative effects on workers. The fundings,、uh, to put it simply, having a contract made a case more likely to go to arbitration, but. Having a contract made an arbitrated case receive about forty percent less of the compensation. And do you think you had a long enough time period in terms of your data sets?、Uh-huh. Because you put these findings、mm-hmm. into a, a, a database,、mm-hmm. is it significant, or do you need to do further research over a longer time period? I think hopefully it will be ideal for any researcher to have a much longer time span for the data, but I don't think the results will change very much. I think it's. 
built in this system, as I mentioned, especially in China, ironically, people have a much stronger belief in efficiency, in how much you can make reflect your ability. So essentially, it's a very competitive market, even for the low-waged workers. They themselves probably more, uh, prefer this kind of piece rate payment because they think if I work hard, I work more effectively, I will make more. So reflecting that principle in the contract, the contract is, is not complete. There's always much room left for this piece rate, all sort of incentive pay, and you cannot specify the incentive pay in advance. So I don't think if I'm conducting a research now for the year of 2006, the results are pretty much the same. And how significant was it then mm. for Ch the Chinese government to pass a law giving contractual rights to workers? Mm. It, it was a milestone. Mm -hmm. So there's other part of this contract law. For example, a firm cannot fire worker as freely as they did before because of contract law. But that's not the whole story because they're not very attractive jobs. So jobs at that level, workers don't really care of that type of protection because even if the firm can provide a minimum wage, but if the firm or manufacturing doesn't have business orders for the workers to actually work on that, a worker can only receive the minimum wage and they won't stay with that firm. So they just go to an, another firm that can provide them the job they can actually do and get more money. And do you see progress in the future as workers realize that they have got rights the contracts may not be watertight but they they can go to law there will be a progression in the future okay in general of course is the awareness of rights and the action put to fight for the rights. Is, exactly, the awareness is important. Yeah, so it's increasing not only for the labor law, in other fields too, but that going back to the labor law, I don't think the workers will perceive the labor law as people from the outside of the field think. So they have their own rationale of being selectively adopting certain clause that will be beneficial to them. Aining, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today looking at labour regulation. Well, thank you so much for having me here. I really enjoyed this workshop and hanging out with many colleagues. Simon, there may be many detractors of China for various reasons, but there's no doubt by giving employees contractual rights, whether or not they find it easy to enforce those rights, is a huge step forward. I think this is a very controversial issue, and there are some labour scholars who would argue that what we have seen in China in the past 20 years is an, an enormous introduction of insecurity and precarious work and informalisation. However, one has to remember that they're not moving away from a stable employment contract of the sort which 
historically might have existed in European or American systems, even here we're moving away from that to some degree, they're moving away from a very different model where the cash nexus, where contract almost played no role, and where, in a sense, there was no freedom of movement for workers. They were tied to a firm and they were deployed, they really were deployed by the state on graduation or on completing their training or their schooling. They were deployed by the state to work for a firm, often for life. Now, there are pros and cons in this move. What one can say is that in a capitalist economy, as China is now, the things we associate with capitalism, technological dynamism and a division of labour, promote a certain type of economic growth, undeniably have assisted the move which has literally brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in China. Now, China's become more unequal, but China is almost alone responsible for the reduction in world poverty, which has occurred over the past 10 to 20 years. Other countries, other regions, haven't really done anything. In fact, it's got worse in most areas of the world. In China, poverty has been reduced. Now, inequality has also gone up because many people became much wealthier. Okay, So it's not a straightforward story. The purpose of the paper is not to judge whether this was right or wrong. The purpose of the paper is to evaluate what happens when you make that move. Are workers better off or worse off in a capitalist system? Their labour rights give them certain benefits, but labour law in a capitalist system is not something that ever really gets away from the fundamental inequality which exists between employers and workers. And employers can play the system to their advantage, and these worker protective reforms don't always have the intended effects. Now, the conclusion I draw from that is not that we don't need labour law in China. They, they, they really do need it. And if employment contract laws have unexpected effects, there are different ways of dealing with that. We don't scrap the laws, we don't have nothing in place, and talk going back to the past in China is meaningless. I don't think that anybody wants to return to the pre-capitalist period. Matthew Alford, lecturer at the Alliance Manchester Business School, University of Manchester. And the paper I presented was Public and Private Governance in South African Fruit, a complementary but who benefits? My name is Natalie Langford and I'm a PhD student at the University of Manchester in the Global Development Institute. And the paper I presented today was on the interests and intersections of public and private actors in shaping southern social standards. Matthew, thank you for talking to the Centre for Business Research at our second day of our conference on workers' regulations and rights. If we have a look at the South African fruit global value chains, why did you decide to study this? Okay, well, the reason I chose South African fruit, there were were a number of reasons, really. Given I was looking at the interaction between public standards and private standards, I wanted to choose a sector, such as South African fruit, that exported to lead firm retailers, which happen to be based in the UK and Europe, as well as being a sector that's actually governed quite heavily by national regulations and labour standards in the South African context. So it gives me a really interesting opportunity to look at how public and private standards interact in in a local context. And and they do interact. In fact, the public standards can drive the private standards at the same time as consumers and internationalism is shaping working conditions and expectations too. Yeah, well, there's a really interesting interaction, I think, between public and private standards, and it's been studied a lot in various literatures, international development, political economy, sociology, so the list goes on. I think that the interesting interaction I was looking at, drawing upon global value chains and global production networks literatures, but more specifically global value chains in this paper, was the interactions between public national standards and global private standards. Um, the interaction 
It's there. And what I found was that the ETI base code, in this case, the private standard, demanded that fruit producers in South Africa adhere to the minimum wage, the public standard in South Africa. But what I found was, very critically, that minimum wage was insufficient to protect farm workers in terms of their living costs, which resulted in this huge labour crisis. There was a strike. There was a very significant strike, yeah. I mean, and it occurred, fortunately for me, immediately after my primary field work. So it occurred at the end of 2012, the beginning of 2013. Thousands of, of predominantly casual farm workers down tools and demanded better working conditions and particularly higher wages. They demanded that of their employers, their local producers, and also of the, the South African government. Very tragically, three farm workers were killed, farms were torched, and in the end, the lead firms who were involved in, in sourcing from the sector said that, look, we're adhering to the ETI base code, the private standards, so, you know, and that calls for national minimum wages to be met. So, look, this isn't our responsibility. And I think in the discussion of my paper here, which has been so, so useful for me, is uh, Shane Godfrey, you know, we, we had a really useful discussion about the implications of that for the responsibility of lead firms and the role of the ETI in this context. So it's not just the fact that minimum wages were low, which I strongly highlight in the paper, it's actually also the fact that, that lead firms and the ETI are asking for a living wage which simply isn't present in the pre-crisis or you could argue the post-crisis South African fruit sector. And the public values are important in leading private standards. Yeah, well, they, I mean, you could say that. I mean, you could definitely say that public standards are absolutely critical in determining labour outcomes as they interact with private standards. Absolutely, yeah. Natalie, if we turn to you now, you, you looked at a, a different value chain in the southern markets, and particularly the case of the Indian tea industry. Why did that interest you? Well, the Indian tea industry has been of great interest for labour scholars, for institutional academics as well, in the sense that the Indian tea industry has been regulated by a huge raft of public regulations since independence from the British, actually, in the late 40s. But these labour laws have not been very stringently applied. And in recent decades, we've seen, as consumers in Europe and America become more aware of, of where their tea is being sourced from, we've actually seen kind of a plethora of private standards as well, such as fair trade. Rainforest Alliance, Ethical Tea Partnership. Now what's really interesting about what's taking place in the Indian tea market is really the growth of the middle class consumers in recent years. And this raises really important questions regarding both what is the role of fair trade and Rainforest Alliance when markets are declining in Europe and America, and what kind of standards might we expect to see in India as Indian consumers become more aware about social and environmental conditions. So this is what really fascinates me, and my paper is really an empirical case study of an initiative called Trustee which was launched in the Indian market in 2013. And I really want to try and unpackage whether it's kind of very much influenced by local institutional actors or if actually some of the same kind of standard setters that we've seen in Europe are now strategically becoming involved as we see a shift to the southern markets. Well, let's ask if they are, because what you're talking about is the power of consumers, internationalism. You've got a private state divide as well in these southern ma markets. But we all know that there was talk of trafficking in the tea industry, particularly the rights of women and, and wages. People were getting houses, but they weren't getting any wages. They were modern-day slaves in, in many respects. And yet the establishment of rights has been led by internationalism. 
through the supply chains. Is that correct? Yes, it is correct. I mean, in a sense, you do have the public standards in place for the plantation sector, but actually private standards have tried to kind of mediate some kind of gap, right, because we're actually seeing huge labour exploitation, which hasn't really been dealt with for decades. But there are very many limitations to private standards as well and private governance, and it's kind of hoped that the shift to the Indian market and the standards that we're seeing, such as trustee, can somehow remedy some of these. But the important issue here really is that as multinational corporations are very much involved in the, in the setting of private standards. Like Unilever? Yeah, like Unilever and also Tata Global Beverages, who's a, a, a multinational Indian-owned company. And actually their kind of role in private standard setting kind of doesn't always, always have the best outcome in terms of wages, actually, because although companies want to appear responsible and ethically motivated, there are certain issues related to prices and the commercial sourcing of tea that means that core issues such as wages aren't always best covered and I think that's where we need to actually see public regulation coming to the fore once again. And just finally your conclusions you said that politics matters there are many actors in this and all, all the actors have a power but just talk us through your two major conclusions. So in regards to the trustee standard, what we're really seeing is that local civil society actors who you would expect to be pushing for these kind of standards in the domestic market aren't really there. And instead, we're seeing that European NGOs and even European governments are playing a really critical role in the introduction of standards in institutional settings that are very far away geographically and also politically from their home domains. And this can be seen as kind of part of geopolitical strategizing on the, on the part of the Dutch government to secure supply chains for the future. But it can also be seen as a legitimacy issue for NGOs who have been making a business, if you will, in standard setting for European markets and actually want to retain some relevance in India. But I will also say that trustee represents perhaps some innovative steps in terms of regulating small tea grow production, which historically has been ignored by both private and public standards. Well, Matthew, if we return to you, what synergy do you see between yours and, and Natalie's work there? Different markets were studied at different times, but there are similarities in many respects. Yeah, I think the real similarities are that, well, first and foremost, we're, we're drawing upon similar theoretical frameworks to, to understand the same problem, which is the effectiveness of social standards in protecting labour in the tea supply chain and, and also the, the fruit supply chain. I think that what we do is we take a transnational or transscalar perspective to look at the interaction of public and private standards and the complexity and, and the, the political implications of that. Highly powerful lead firms, how they interact and the role they play and the responsibility they hold in protecting workers and how that sort of marries or doesn't with the, the interests of national governments. And I think what Natalie's paper does really well and, and, and possibly more so in the Indian cases is, is highlights the blurring of boundaries between public and private actors, the role of governments, the state and, and powerful sort of transnational lead firms. Do you agree, Natalie, that there are similarities? Yeah, I agree completely, both in the conceptual framing but also actually the relationships that we see between public and private actors in standard setting. And I think, yeah, there's a lot to be learned from both papers. So just finally, internationalism doesn't necessarily mean a race to the bottom. People, global media, social media, people know about their rights. 
I think that's definitely true to a certain extent. And in India, we're seeing even some of the poorest communities having access to media now. And actually, in terms of looking at workers' rights and the rights of tea growers, you're actually seeing a lot of protest and kind of footage of conditions being very rapidly kind of transmitted. And that there is certainly evidence that Indian consumers are definitely waking up to kind of environmental and social issues in a very price-sensitive market, actually. So it's very interesting that actually the ethicality of the Indian consumer is probably higher than the European some ways. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I absolutely do. And I think just building on what Natalie said and, and particularly drawing upon this, uh, the South African case and, and my paper, which sort of focused and honed in on this labour crisis. I mean, one fascinating development of that was that it was social media that was being used by workers to spread the word about the escalating strikes. And so that, I think that's, that's as you mentioned, as you state in your question, I think the increased awareness of workers as, as not just as labourers, but as labourers with rights is becoming increasingly significant. Uh, yeah. So we're not necessarily on a trajectory of a race to the bottom internationally with workers' rights? No, no. And, and I think another way of dealing with that point as well, and, and, and as I mentioned in the paper, is, I mean, in South Africa, post-apartheid South Africa, it wasn't a race to the bottom. They introduced a whole raft of labour laws that now we see interacting with private standards. The issue is the minimum wage is incredibly low. Have we've got to remember that these producers are under extreme global commercial pressures within the value chain to export to us as consumers in the global north and, and increasingly the global south products that are cheap, good quality, and that just doesn't all add up. They're in a catch-22, and, and I think that's highly significant. But it's not a race to the bottom as such. It's extremely complex contestation between a range of powerful and less powerful actors. Yeah, I certainly agree. And I think one kind of caveat to all of this, though, is that although we have consumer pressure and so-called ethical standards in European markets, actually there's still an argument to be made for a more political-based approach, because quite often Western consumers can feel like they're making a real difference by utilising these certifications, by buying fair trade, but actually this isn't always the case. So it's not simply that, you know, you see this kind of lower standards in the global south. Actually, in the global north, we need to be thinking a little bit more clearly about what we are consuming and how we can help conditions there too. Reasons to be cheerful. Natalie Matthew, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today on our Labour Standards Conference. Thank you very much. Absolute pleasure to be here. I've learned a lot myself. Yeah, thanks so much. Had a great time. Hi, my name is Professor Khalid Nadvi. I'm based at the University of Manchester, the Global Development Institute, where I am the Professor of International Development, the Director of Research at the School of Environment, Education and Development. And in addition, I'm the Research Program Coordinator for the ESRC's Rising Powers and Integrated Futures Research Program. We've had a number of papers on employment rights over long periods of time in the rising powers and the BRICS. What did you find interesting about the presentation of these papers? I think what was very interesting in this workshop is we were able to bring together work from two projects under the ESRC, Rising Powers and Integrative Futures Program. But projects both looking at the issues of labor standards, but looking at them from somewhat different disciplinary angles and different methodologies. And I think what we've learned really is that by bridging across the disciplines of legal studies, law and development, as well as development studies, and by bringing in quantitative and qualitative methodologies to the work, we end up with a much richer set of insights on how countries like China, India, South Africa and Brazil engage with questions around labor, labor regulation and labor standards and the issues around corporate social responsibility. And the conference and the research is also taking place at a time 
when workers are subject to internationalism? Well, certainly globalization is. I think globalization drives the story behind the whole of the ESRC program on rising powers and trying to understand how these countries begin to sort of shape and impact debates around questions that you said about, you know, that concern many consumers here in the UK, in Cambridge and so on, about how things that we eat, that we consume, that we wear are produced and manufactured. How do they come about? How is labor involved in that process? Fair uh, trade being a case in point. Absolutely, absolutely. So those, those factors come into this. But I think at the same time, the geography, or, or put it another way, you know, we are in a sort of what I would call an inflection point in globalization. There's a new era emerging, and not only that the geographies of production have changed, that it's now increasingly the manufacturing takes place in the global south, but increasingly also the, the geographies of consumption are changing. The consumers in places like China and India and Brazil are both increasing in numbers and in terms of their volumes of cons- uh, that they are buying, but they're also becoming discerning. And we're interested in seeing to what extent those consumers begin to shape debates around this agenda, as well as how South-South trade begins to change the dynamics of this. So yes, you're absolutely right. Workers' rights, labor issues has to be seen through the lens of an international framework or a a globalization framework. That kind of north-south perspective on globalization, I think, has begun to change. And one thing that's coming out of the research, both from these two projects as part of the Rising Powers Program, but also more widely across the Rising Powers Program, which is an amalgam of, of 12 different research studies, the impact of this Rising Powers is having across a number of areas of global governance. And that is really critical. I think that's the key story. If we then take the two papers presented on the second day of the Labour Standards Workshop here in Cambridge, as you said, an amalgam of institutions and people producing these papers. But one has looked at tea workers in India, uh, another at fruit workers in South Africa. There were similarities in the research, very different disputes, very different labour standards and regulations, but looking at the the impact of the public sector on private corporate organisations. There were great similarities taking place in the world at the same time. Absolutely. I mean, I think both papers that came out of the one out of the Manchester project and another by another colleague based on Manchester draw out similar approaches to the analysis. So the, both papers have used what's called the Global Production Network framework of analysis, trying to understand how systems of production organization are globally organized, how lead firms govern those sets of interfirm linkages, but also how a whole set of actors that are outside of the chain, the value chain, impact on the ways in which the value chain operates. So the role of government, the state, the public regulatory framework, the role of civil society organizations, NGOs and such like, the role of trade unions, and so on, how they shape the ways in which global lead firms land in those areas of production, and also how they shape the outcomes for workers in those local contexts. The study on tea in India has been focusing around the emergence of a private multi-stakeholder initiative in India, which brings together the two leading tea producers, not just in India, but globally, as well as the Indian state in terms of developing a tea standard but a tea standard geared not for the necessarily the international market, but for the Indian market. And the Indian domestic market for tea consumption is huge. And that study begins to unpack the ways in which 
that standard has evolved, and then tries to locate that process within the context of the changing political economy of tea production and the role of workers' positions in that and what it says for workers' outcome. The South Africa paper, which comes out of a very extensive PhD project, shows that the nature of private governance that's driven by the UK and European retailers of fresh fruit and uh, vegetable, particularly fresh fruit coming from the Western Cape in South Africa, how does that interact with the way in which the South African state seeks to regulate around labor in those areas? And in particular, what it throws up is that despite the fact that we have a minimum wage regulation in South Africa, which the UK buyers require their suppliers to meet, workers were protesting extensively and those protests became quite violent not because the minimum wage regulation was not being met. It was being met, but it was too low as a minimum wage to meet the needs of workers in those situations. And there can also be some variable findings in terms of contracts and law in, say, another of the BRICs, China. That is very true. But, I mean, I think, you know, you have to see it in in the wider perspective. So what has happened in China since 2008 is that the government, the the party state, has has promulgated a series of labor laws. It hasn't come about through pressure from the trade unions per se, or or the ACFTU in China, or from the manufacturers or from the multinationals that are there. It's come about because the government in China has begun to realize that it's important to have a regulatory framework on labor that provides protection to workers. So these fairly strongly pro-labor laws have come about. You're absolutely right, they're implemented unevenly across the country. So, So different provinces have engaged with them in different ways. But nevertheless, the state in China has been able to use these laws to drive a process of not just improved labor outcomes, what you might call social upgrading of workers, and particularly around labor rights, but also economic upgrading. They've used this as a way to drive labor wages up. So minimum wages have gone up in the coastal zones, particularly in Guangdong, but also in the Yangtze River Delta areas of Jiangsu province and elsewhere. And it has improved labor outcomes. So workers are not only getting better wages, but they're also getting protection around dismissals, they're getting protection around working hours, they're getting protection around what happens to their pensions and their pension rights. That is not to say that issues don't remain. Many issues remain. Workers are exercising agency in China in many different ways. The numbers of wildcat strikes are increasing, and that's, you know, so there are issues certainly there. But I think there is a really interesting story emerging in China around labor regulations and the implications that arise for that, for labor standards in China and labor outcomes in China, is, I think, on the whole, a positive one. There's a genuinely held belief that globalisation, in terms of workers' rights, is leading to a race to the bottom. There was a case to suppose that if you give workers better rights, it increases productivity and profitability. Do you agree with that? I think certainly that is the evidence that's coming out from Professor Deacon's work and, and the work that's coming out from project and more widely from the lexymetric analysis. And I think that requires and warrants much further investigation because it is countering orthodox opinions in terms of economics around labor regulation and productivity outcomes. On the other hand, I think it is also important to recognize that, you know, one of the things about globalization has been a kind of an emergent, has been a process of neoliberalization and the retreat 
of the state. That's certainly something that we've experienced here in the UK, in the global north, and in the west. And some of that has percolated down over the years into developing countries, which have had to liberalize and open up markets and deregulate and so on, including deregulation around areas of labor and labor rights. However, what comes out from the emerging power story, from the rising power story, is that countries like China and Brazil and India have kind of bucked that trend. You know, they have had strong states. They have states that have continued to regulate in those areas, and in particularly uh, in China, and even more so in Brazil, have been able to implement labor regulations that improve labor outcomes and labor rights. And in the case of China, certainly, it shows that there are no negative impacts of that in terms of economic and productivity gains. If anything had a, a positive impact in productivity, it's led to not just social upgrading, but economic upgrading as well. In terms of your rising powers, uh, research looking across the world, across the global world and globalised supply chains, as you described, there's reason to be optimistic. Absolutely. I think, you know, what we are beginning to show through our work, and this will move forward after the Rising Powers programme comes to an end, is that countries like China, Brazil and India are no longer the kind of classic developing countries. These emerging powers have huge influence in the global stage. And in also because they're very large countries in their own rights, in terms of both population, in terms of manufacturing output, in terms of the levels of export and trade that they're involved in, their impact is going to be immense. So I think you know we are beginning to challenge a narrative that was there certainly four or five years ago when this program of work began, that countries like China, Brazil, and India might drive a race to the bottom around questions of standards, particularly around labor and environmental standards. I think our research and recent evidence shows clearly that this is not the case, that actually it's a much more nuanced story to be explored. And also there are, you know, at the same time, we have to recognize that this story is highly differentiated. So What you might see in China is very distinct. What you might see in India is very distinct. What you might see in Brazil is also very distinct. In addition, things change over time. So Brazil is going through a process of political crisis right now, and that political crisis reflects, in some ways, challenges to the kind of social consensus, the social contract that had emerged earlier in Brazil in the post-dictatorship era. And in India and in China, again, you see very different narratives emerging. So... I think we need to now begin to look at these countries more specifically. We also need to begin to think about regional variations within those countries. But I think at the same time, the kind of traditional north-south view of the world and the traditional ways in which we were thinking about or fearing that these countries might begin to challenge the kind of consensus that emerged in the global north around social and environmental standards, I think that fear is, is a little bit overemphasized and we need to now kind of unpack that a bit better. And have more confidence to be able to say, well, actually give workers rights their lives improve, and the company's profits improve as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think that is where both projects kind of emphasize that's the normative views that underlie both projects. But I think we're also beginning to see that in the countries where we've done our research, and our research is quite different in terms of who we were researching and how we were conducting that research. So whether it's the qualitative research uh, conducted by the Manchester team on global production networks, 
or the quantitative research conducted by the Cambridge team on labor regulations by these emerging rising power states. What both sets of studies are beginning to show is that there are improvements taking place. It is slow, but there are improvements taking place in terms of the regulatory framing of labor rights, but also the implementation of that, and that those outcomes will have some impact on workers in those contexts. That is not to say that there are not problems that remain, and that is not to say that you know, workers need to continue to exercise their own agency and their own power, and trade unions need to be active. That continues, and that struggle continues. But certainly the evidence that both studies are beginning to suggest is that this is a much more nuanced, much more richer, and much more varied terrain than we had earlier expected. Simon Deakin, Director of the Centre for Business Research. The theme that's come out of this Labour Standards workshop over two days in Cambridge is that there are positive moves in whatever country in the BRICS you look for. There are huge trends towards what they would call sustainability and ethics in production now. Well, I think what's happening in the, in the so-called rising powers, which have already risen, really, so that term is a bit old-fashioned now, is that as they become... Uh, more capitalist, okay, we're, we're talking about China is moved away from planning, India was a kind of socialist planned economy, uh, Brazil was not like that, but Brazil was, dictatorship is now a democracy, although its democracy is under stress, but South Africa had apartheid, South Africa is now a democracy. Okay, so in, in these systems, we see enormous stresses and turbulence in the exposure of previously protected national markets to global competition, and a very kind of turbocharged version of capitalism being adopted in these countries. What else could we expect? Okay, capitalism has been turbulent everywhere, including in Europe, but it's particularly turbulent in China, which has seen these amazing rates of growth. It's particularly turbulent in South Africa, given the, the very difficult legacy of apartheid and the racial divisions and inequalities, which are extreme, which still exist in South Africa. In India's case, how do you overcome informality, which is 90% of the labor force, plus the historic legacy of the caste system and all these things. So in these rising powers, the turbulence is enormous. What's the direction of change? As a labor lawyer interested in the welfare state and labor regulation, collective bargaining and union rights, I would say as these countries become more, more capitalist, they're more market-orientated, they need labor law more. Now, it doesn't mean they'll always get strong labor laws, but we shouldn't be surprised to see strong labor institutions developing in these countries. This is a process which went on in the global north a century ago. Now, again, I'm not saying that what happened in Europe will happen in China, um, although it has to be said there are some similarities. Okay, So I, I think the lesson from this is the institutions of labor law, labor rights, employment contracts, labor courts, if we want to see where these are really developing quickly today, we go to China and South Africa and India. This is where much of the action is. Simon Deacon, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series on your Labour Standards Workshop. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you.